This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Amitav Ghosh, author of Gun Island. I think we are living in a world which is really uh, in a state of incredible sort of disruption and crisis. I think every time we look around, we can see that, you know. I, I feel a certain kind of urgency about that. And, you know, that made me somehow go back and start reading these old uh, Bengali folk tales again. And when I started reading them, one thing I realized is that, uh, you know, these stories uh, are again about a very disrupted world. We'll hear more from Amitav Ghosh in a few minutes. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch for Patreon before becoming members. So I invite you to beat the odds if this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free first draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to this podcast now. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft community. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. So please get online and go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters and support this show. I hope that from the more than 200 episodes, you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. And it takes your support to keep it going. So if First Draft is part of your life, please contribute. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 first draft shows Stay tuned at the end of this interview. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Amitav Ghosh, author of the acclaimed Ibis trilogy, including Sea of Poppies, River of Smoke, and Flood of Fire. He is the author of nine novels and six books of nonfiction. His fiction has won numerous awards. His work has been translated into 30 languages. Ghosh was born in Kolkata, India, and he lives in Brooklyn and Goa, India. His latest novel, Gun Island, tells the story of Dean Dada, who lives in New York but travels to his home in Kolkata and suddenly becomes immersed in discovering the real-life origins of a folktale that has haunted his imagination since childhood. The folktale focuses on a mysterious gun merchant. Dean's journey takes him from India to Venice as he progresses on his investigation of the gun merchant legend. 
As Dean searches for understanding of the historic folktale, he is also confronted with the crises of today, including those of the climate and European migrant. Gun Island, at its heart, is also about how we make sense of the world through mystery, fact, science, the supernatural, and story. We began the discussion with Amitav Ghosh sharing his thoughts about this question that I asked him. I have a lot of questions about Gun Island and the impetus for this, but it seems to me that so much about this book is about storytelling and storytelling's impact on our life. And I'm wondering if I'm onto something there and if you would say that's true and and what you would say about that. I think it's fundamentally a book about storytelling and, uh, you know, the, the impact that storytelling has on our lives. Yeah, it's curious. Uh, I've done so many interviews, but very few, you know, <laughs> interviewers have asked me that. Actually, none that I can think of. Uh, yet, I think it's a book about the power of story. I felt that on so many levels. And, and here's a few of them. One is, you know, your main character, Dean, is, I wouldn't say haunted, but he has this memory of a story that he heard as a child that's a folktale that's stuck in his head. And that's one level of, of his story. And then there's the folktales themselves that are stories. And then there's supernatural things that happen and events where people might not be in their right mind realizing things and those themselves those incidences are stories and so that's some of what I saw in that and also it's so much about how we organize our world and make sense of the things that happen to us and one of the things you have kind of in the middle of the book you talk about stories tapping into dimensions beyond the ordinary that's kind of what I saw uh, it's so interesting. I mean, I think you, you I mean, you've really uh, put your finger on it. The book is fundamentally a book about uh, that connects various kinds of storytelling. You know, the storytelling of uh, pre-modern times, of sort of like legends and myths, and the ways in which that connects with the ways that people live their lives, uh, and uh, certainly the ways in which stories put things in motion and the, the sort of uncanny effects that stories can have. So obviously you're a novelist, you've been telling stories your whole life, and we can talk a little bit about the initial story that kicked this off, but was there something conscious in you about storytelling and the way we frame our world that you were really trying to get at, or that was nagging at you that you wanted to get out in this book? Yeah, many things. I think we are living in a world which is really... Uh, in a state of incredible sort of disruption and crisis. I think every time we look around, we can see that, you know. And uh, I I feel a certain kind of urgency about that. And, you know, that made me somehow go back and start reading these old uh, Bengali folk tales again. And when I started reading them, one thing I realized is that, uh, you know, these stories uh, are again about a very disrupted world. These stories are about uh, disasters, calamities, droughts, famines, uh, you know, horrific things happen, uh, snakes attack people, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, in some way, I felt that, you know, that kind of mythic uh, storytelling actually captures something very important about a moment in time, uh, which is kind of uncannily like ours. So let's talk about the actual sort of plot and some of your characters. 
the book opens and we meet Dean, who is a bookseller of rare books, and he's kind of down on his luck. He's had a lot of lost love. He's into the second half of his life, and he ends up going back to India, his homeland, and meets with a distant relative that tells him about a folktale that he's always been kind of obsessed and interested in since childhood that has real roots in a real place. So what happens is that Dean is back there uh, and his relative tells him about this temple in the jungle, which is connected with this old folktale that he's always been interested in. And so he goes to visit the temple in the jungle. And while he's there, he meets these uh, two young men. One of them is a kind of very smart sort of uh, a young guy who's uh, seen quite a lot of the world and is very clever with uh, with computers and so on. And the other is a, a very simple kind of rural fisherman. Anyway, he goes to this temple with them and there they have this kind of shocking encounter with a, a snake. You know, it completely sort of uh, changes uh, their lives. Uh, Dean comes back to Brooklyn, but somehow his life doesn't uh, sort of settle down in the usual ways. And he finds the story uh, continuously surfacing in his life. He runs into many kinds of uh, strange, many events. And finally, he ends up in uh, in Venice. Uh, in fact, the last half of the book is set uh, almost entirely in Venice and in, in and around Italy. One of the things I think your book did was it took this folktale, and it's, it's basically about a merchant who was kind of on the run from this snake goddess and wanted yes. to prosper and she would get in his way of that prosperity. And throughout the book, there was modern day, both a modern day reflection of that folktale happening in your plot with the other characters that was set kind of in the here and now. And then also in the here and now, were clues that maybe this quote folktale was actually real from the temple he goes to to things he sees in Italy that were described in the folktale and as he looked back in history he could see where maybe some of these real events happened. So do you think that the present is always haunted by the past? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think the present is always haunted by the past. Uh, You know, we tend to forget that because we live in a very presentist age, you know, where people think that uh, the present is somehow completely itself. It's absolutely different from anything that went before it. How is your present haunted by the past? I I was wondering because your main character had this story from his childhood that was stuck in his head that kind of possessed him. And I wonder if you had that too, if this in fact was you. Um, or other ways that the past kind of haunts you or or is present in your daily life? I know that's a big question. <laughs> it is. You know, the, the, the past is very present in my life because I'm very interested in history. I read about history all the time, and it kind of fascinates me. And I've written a very, I mean, a series of historical novels. So uh, in that sense, the past is constantly present uh, uh, in my life. But Uh, You know, there are so many ways in which we see aspects of the past being reborn. For example, uh, look at the Internet. You know, it's so much it's so unlike anything that existed in the past. It's completely new. It's completely different. But in fact, the strange ways in which the Internet uh, actually enables certain kinds of phenomena that exist in the past. Now, that's a really interesting thing. Uh, Consider, for example, the ways in which... uh, 
the internet has made these these sort of outbreaks of hate, hate possible you know these hate filled attacks of people minorities often uh, you know the way that uh, the internet allows people to sort of focus uh, a kind of anger in a certain direction the way it actually makes people more angry often i think these things are really tapping into something very ancient Another thing in here that that has to do directly with past is memory. Memory is important to this in many ways. One very concrete way is that Dean has this friend named Chinta, and at first he doesn't really remember this folk tale. And then he has this memory of when Chinta, who is, I'm forgetting right now what her job is. She's a professor. Yes, she's a professor of history, and she's a specialist on the history of Venice. Uh, she's uh, kind of like a mysterious mentor figure to him. And she's, uh, you know, sort of mentored him all his life, found him jobs and so on. And then at the end of the book, he discovers that, in fact, uh, uh, she sensed a kind of connection he first met. So Achinta is, for me, in many ways, the center of the book, you know. Uh, she's uh, really the voice that speaks to us from the past and the voice that speaks to us. Uh, in a very humane way about what is possible in the present. Yeah, I think Chinta also is, um, she's kind of a ribbon that brings things together because she is the one that helps Dean connect not just this folktale to what, that it could have been a real event as they see different actual physical features that were described in that, but she's also kind of a moral connection for him in maybe understanding how it all makes sense? Yes, she sort of takes him deeper and deeper into the story. And of course, you know, he very much resists her way of looking at the world, which is, um, you know, a completely atheistic, uh, rational way of looking uh, upon things. Uh, But by the end of it, he begins to realize that, you know, she has certain intuitions Uh, and certain sorts of gifts that allow her to uh, see things in different ways. I would say, too, that the story is is also a journey story. So just getting back to the plot, when Dean goes to India and hears about this, and his distant relative tells him, you know, there's this island in the Sundarban, which is kind of a swampy, snaky environment. And he meets these two young boys, Rafi and Tupi. And... To me, they they hold kind of a supernatural element to it and also ground him in in reality that we can talk about in terms of their status in the world and what happens to them. But can you talk a little bit about those characters and that relationship? So Rafi and Tipu are, as you said, these these younger characters from from very different circumstances. Uh, But they're both Bengalis, Bengali speaking. Uh, and in the end, they end up uh, making this very long journey from uh, the Indian subcontinent uh, all the way across to across uh, to Europe. One of them across the Mediterranean, one of them across uh, Turkey. The impetus for writing about them really came from the uh, European refugee crisis of 2015-2016. At that time, I found myself quite fascinated by these. Uh, by these uh, journeys that uh, these young uh, that these young people were making, you know, crossing the Mediterranean, at, uh, you know, great danger to themselves in these rickety old boats, uh, you know, coming through Libya where many of them have been held captive in slave camps and stuff like that. 
uh, fascinated me most of all because I noticed in in uh, you know looking at the pictures and in, in looking at the footage on uh, on television that many of these these refugees were actually from South Asia, uh, whereas you know the narrative that we all heard is that they were from uh, that most of the refugees were from Syria or Iraq or Saharan Africa. So I became very puzzled by this, and I started sort of researching into it. And I discovered to my great surprise that, in fact, uh, migrants from Bangladesh uh, were the second largest group uh, crossing into Italy in many months uh, of 2016, 2017. So this really sort of intrigued me. And I thought, you know, what's going on here? Why are so many of these young Bangladeshis, uh, you know, crossing the Mediterranean in this uh, terribly dangerous way? So I went off to Italy uh, in 2017, and I visited many of the migrant camps and refugee centers, and I spoke to a, a, a large number of migrants and just tried to get a sense of the, you know, of what they had been through, uh, what their stories were, and so on. And it was completely fascinating, really. Yeah, it's so interesting because it it parallels so much with the immigrants coming into our country. From Mexico and this faction that doesn't want them, that is trying to keep them out of landing, in the case of Italy, from their boat, and how the ways in which they were almost enslaved, trying to get over there, and then some of them, you know, have, have decent jobs, but some are almost like enslaved in the jobs that they have um, to get there, and, and this, this idea that all immigrants, I think, have of trying to get a better life and what they go through to get it. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not always the case that they end up with a better life. You know, I mean, often the lives that they end up with are, are really terrible. Uh, yeah, uh, the the enslaving part is actually a really uh, it's a really shocking aspect of these uh, of these journeys because across Libya, ever since. Uh, the Gaddafi regime was overthrown. Uh, you know, this whole kind of slavery phenomenon has actually broken out. I mean, you know, uh, there are these huge armed gangs capture migrants and uh, make them work for nothing in construction or, um, you know, on the fields. Uh, and it's sometimes even worse, one of the most uh, appalling things that's, uh, that's actually going on in the world is that, you know, there are places uh, where migrants, uh, if they can't pay, uh, if they can't uh, make payments for their journeys or their onward journeys, uh, you know, the, the, these traffickers will actually uh, remove some of their vital organs and sell them. Uh, I mean, this has been happening in the Sinai. In fact, the UN has, has published uh, a book about it. So it's a kind of, uh, I mean, What's actually happening out there with these, uh, with um, many of the refugees and migrants who come through from Africa, it's kind of horrifying. Is that hard to do as a fiction writer to have a point of view, have a social stance, and weave it into fiction without being pedantic? Uh, I suppose it is, yes. Well, the thing is that these things are out happening, you know, they're out there in the world. And, um, you know, if you're if you're aware of them, uh, you just know that it, uh, terrible things are going on. I mean, even if you read stories about the migrants who are crossing 
the border into the United States. You know, you get you get a sense of what what terrible circumstances are unfolding across the world, and it's not just in poor countries. You know, uh, a lot of people are now being displaced uh, you know, within the United States. I mean, just look at these wildfires. You know, how many people they're being displaced by these wildfires. Uh, I just met someone who. Uh, being down to paradise in California, you know, and she she was telling me that it's kind of uh, it's kind of a, a horrifying to see, you know, what goes on, what's happened to the people who ran away uh, from that from that town. I mean, they haven't been able to find uh, accommodation often, and they're still their lives are just utterly destructive. But you know, think about one great American classic, uh, you know, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Uh, that's about you know that's about migrants and that's about migrants who were displaced from Oklahoma in the 1930s and had to move to California and had to try and make their lives there uh, and it's a wonderful book I mean uh, it's probably one of the one of the most uh, widely read books in the world and you know it's not necessarily entertaining in any immediate sense but you know it speaks to people it uh, people see something in it that uh, they respond to. So one of the elements in the book is um, Dean uh, goes on, and when he's in India, he meets a woman named Priya. He has these ideas that maybe they could have a romantic connection. He's looking for that in general in life and feels something for her. He is holds back a lot, and she's very scientific. She studies dolphins, and she's seeing the effects of climate change on the dolphin population and how that affects it. And she sees some very special, what some people might say, out of this world or supernatural occurrences with dolphins that you wouldn't expect to see. And she has to explain it all through science. Can you talk a little bit about their connection and her character? Dean meets again, he meets Pia in Calcutta. She's a, she's a marine biologist and she's studying uh, these dolphins in the, in the Sundarbans, uh, where, you know, these are, these are basically uh, freshwater dolphins, but, you know, they also uh, live in brackish water and so on. Uh, and she observes all these things that are happening around her. Uh, Pia is uh, a field biologist, you know, she's someone who works in the field. And I know some field biologists, I've worked with field biologists, and especially for the women, it's a very hard life. I mean, it's, it's a, the life of field biology is really, basically, they completely sacrifice their private lives, you know, because, you know, they have to go off to places where the animals are, and the animals aren't necessarily, I mean, they're almost never in a... Uh, in a place where you get to meet other people or, uh, you know, other people that you might uh, get on with. So they do become very solitary people, very solitary, very, uh, very independent, very uh, cut and dried in many ways. I think they're very remarkable people, really, these, uh, these biologists who put themselves out there in the world at uh, such great cost to themselves, you know. I mean, uh, just driven purely by dedication to what they do. And I think that in some ways... Dean was kind of straddling these worlds because Chinta, his good friend from Italy, mm. has a more, I guess, spiritual, supernatural, things happen for mysterious reasons and we can't explain it all point of view. And Priya has yeah. a very hard line kind of science point of view. And he's kind of going back and forth between 
both. And I wouldn't say that he's confused necessarily, but I think he's in a way straddling the difference. There were all these supernatural elements. I mean, one was just kind of some magical things that happened with dolphins kind of appearing where you wouldn't necessarily see them appear and different species together at once. Maybe supernatural forces where Rafi is in a boat after Tipu had a cobra bite and Tipu's having these visions um, from the snakes and telling these kind of tales out loud and it made me think about like is this in some part how stories get made not that we're in a a delusional state but he was poisoned and he was in this heightened state and maybe seeing things in a non-linear way or connecting things metaphorically that we don't do at once you know i think what uh, people goes through is a kind of uh, near-death experience and I don't know if you have ever watched someone go through a near-death experience or heard anyone speak of a near-death experience. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, someone very close to me did go through an experience of that kind, and I was present. And, uh, you know, it was kind of extraordinary to uh, listen to what they were seeing and what they were uh, experiencing. Uh, and I think that just had a, a, a huge impact on me and made me think about, uh, you know, what that kind of experience might be, um, really. Uh, so, yeah, I, I suppose you would say that uh, Tipu really had a near-death experience. For some reason, I was thinking, even though you never talk about it, I was thinking about biblical stories in addition to folk tales, and, like, how did these some of these stories really get written, and what state of mind were people transmitting them in? And there is, like magic and things that you can't believe like from the bible religious texts all over and i was just thinking that about that a lot in in reference to just stories and how they get told it seems like there's a certain kind of story that has the magical element i i think what you're saying is true i think stories occur in some altered state of consciousness <laughs> you know it's uh, stories don't come out of your sort of everyday uh, a life where you're sort of running around, uh, you know, answering your phone or something, you know. Uh, they do come out of, a, out of a deeply altered kind of way of thinking, a, a deeply altered uh, state of consciousness, really. You know, you mentioned the dolphins and uh, the, the sort of uh, strange things that happened with the dolphins and the cetaceans and so on. Uh, but, you know, so many spiritual figures and so many, you know, unusual shamanic figures, if you like, actually see animals in a completely different way from uh, from other people. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the book uh, A Black Elk Speaks. Uh, it's by a, a Lakota Native, Amer- Native American medicine man. Yes. You've read it. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you remember there that he's constantly talking about the... Uh, uh, you know, the mysterious horses that appear, the mysterious bulls that appear around him, and the ways in which uh, animals just constantly sort of act in ways which uh, which are revelatory for him. So, you know, look, at the end of the day, I think, uh, uh, you know, there are things on heaven and earth that our philosophies can never explain, you know. Do you have a pet? I don't at the moment, but I have had pets most of my life, yes. I think that connects you to the animal world in a way 
that you don't even imagine. I guess for me, I didn't have a dog until I was an adult, so maybe I could articulate it more. But I felt like once I had a dog and I looked into his eyes, that I wasn't just looking into his eyes. I was looking into the eyes of all the animal species in the world. You know, it's really true. I mean, uh, when you have a pet and you look at the dog, you know, and you know the, the many states of mind uh, that your pet goes through, uh, you know perfectly well that animals have emotions, you know, like human beings do. They have so many kinds of emotions, so many kinds of uh, uh, responses that are really very much like uh, human responses. Uh, in fact, I don't know if, you, if you've ever read this book called Animal Madness. No, uh, it's, it's by a writer called Laurel Braitman. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I really urge you to read it uh, because, you know, uh, uh, ma uh, madness is a very frequent uh, phenomenon in the animal kingdom. Uh, there's a long history of it. And uh, this writer, when she's, uh, her, her, she begins the book by describing this dog that she had. And, uh, you know, she adopted this dog. It was one of those big, uh, you know, a furry sh a sheep dog type of thing. And uh, she said this dog was just clearly bad. Uh, the way that it behaved was completely unpredictable. Uh, and if she left him alone, uh, he would just completely freak out. Um, and, uh, you know, it became so uncontrollable that in fact her marriage broke up. And then one day in front of her very own eyes, the dog committed suicide by leaping out off a balcony, of a sixth floor balcony or something. And then she gives innumerable instances uh, of this kind. Parrots, you know, pulling out all their feathers because they're unhappy. You know, there have been elephants that committed suicide. And elephants, especially uh, in the Indian subcontinent, you know, they always say elephants never get. And elephants do have these uh, very uncanny relationships with, uh, with people, especially with the people who work with them. So there is really so much more to the world of animals than we think. I, I can't say I, I think I would feel that with a cobra. After I read your cobra scene, I actually had a nightmare that night. Oh, you did? <laughs> Maybe it's primal. It is very primal. You know, I'm, I'm terrified of snakes. And I, I mean, they give me nightmares too, so it was a nightmare writing it. But, uh, uh, you know, the thing is, if something you're writing is going to have any power... You have to live through those nightmares, you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's success for your book, that I had a nightmare. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the hardest things to do in writing, I always think, uh, is to make people laugh uh, and to make them fearful or to scare them. Well, talking about the madness, something I noticed, and I'm curious if it was this particular story or if it's fiction in general, that your really main character's had such loss and started off with loss. Rafi and Tupi experienced more loss as the book went on. They lost their country. They lost their safety. They lost each other. But we begin with Dean has a loss of love. His business is kind of at a loss. Priya is, is losing the dolphins. The world is losing them. Chinta lost her daughter. And so we see so much loss from the very beginning do you feel like this just electrifies fiction? Is it just the human condition? Was it this story? I think it is the human condition. Uh, the Buddha said a long time ago, you know, uh, life is suffering. And uh, all his teachings were about suffering and how not to suffer. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a curious thing that we forget in the modern world. We think life is all about 
uh, things being good, you know, but uh, historically people knew that life isn't, uh, life isn't easy, that life has always uh, entailed a lot of suffering and loss. So, yes, I mean, these characters all go through, uh, you know, very wrenching kinds of emotional traumas. Is there something that you want people to come away with when they finish your work? Well, if there is any one thing I would like them to come away with, it's the sense that, you know, the world is much stranger than we think. And the ways in which our world is changing is itself very cha- very strange, very uncanny, very disturbing. And we have to try and, you know, grapple with it and try to make sense of it. I heard you on your NPR interview talking about the uncanny and the fire incident, which I'll, I'll ask you to share. And it's so interesting sure. because I think books and fiction often can rely on coincidences. I mean, maybe not as overt as Oliver Twist, but sometimes you need coincidences to bring characters together or to bring settings into tension. And there's a difference between uncanny things and coincidences. And I wonder if that makes sense to you and if you can talk about it and then your experience. Uh, Sure. Well, uh, there is the uncanny. And uh, look, basically, it's impossible to tell a story without coincidences. It's just not possible. Uh, Because, uh, you know, uh, coincidences are what make life possible. You know, just think about how you met a, uh, met your partner or how you found your job. All these things happen out of, uh, you know, very improbable uh, events. All of these things are fundamentally improbable. I mean, basically, you know, seven or eight uh, coincidences or improbable events actually define the course of your life. So life is filled with coincidences, very important, coinc- important coincidences of many kinds. So I would say that it's not coincidences that are that are strange or uh, unreal. I would say it is actually the other way around. Why do we think of coincidences in fiction as being stranger than than life? You know, because life is like that. And what was your uncanny uncanny experience when you were writing this? Yeah. So actually, there have been many. Uh, you know, but uh, I'll, I'll just give you an example of one. I mean, uh, you know, there was a uh, there's a scene in the book which is about a wildfire approaching a museum in Los Angeles, a museum that's like the Getty Museum. And as you know, I mean, once again, you know, uh, uh, Los Angeles is threatened by wildfire today. But uh, and, uh, and as you know, this actually happened. I mean, there was a wildfire advancing on Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was in uh, 2017. But the strange thing was that I wrote that I wrote that chapter before six months before the wildfire happened, six months before this museum was threatened by this wildfire. So you know when when the when the wildfire actually happened, when the event actually played out in real life, it was kind of so well uncanny. That's what it was. I mean, it was so disturbing to see something you had seen in your head uh, playing out in real life. But there have been several other uh, such instances, you know. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, I also write about a tornado in Venice. There have been a couple of tornadoes uh, in that area in recent times. Again, this never used to happen. I wrote about this massive hailstorm. And again, uh, there was this massive hailstorm in Venice. 
Uh, I write about that uh, poisonous spider. The other day, a friend of mine called me. He lives in Venice. And he said uh, he had, he'd had to take his son to the hospital with a spider bite uh, because he'd been bitten by this poisonous spider. So, you know, it's just those strange things that are sort of, it's a part of this whole uncanny reality that we are all living in now. Maybe you missed your calling as a meteorologist. <laughs> Maybe, yes. You're right. Maybe I did. One of the sections in the book that I marked down because it was one of my favorite, but it also sort of encapsulates our whole conversation, is yeah. Chinta was talking to Dean about this folktale as they were yeah. starting to see kind of the real shrine and trying to see to see evidence of it in, in real life. And you wrote, they knew that only through stories was it possible to enter the most inward mysteries of our existence where nothing that is really important can be proven to exist, like love or loyalty or even the faculty that makes us turn around when we feel the gaze of a stranger or an animal. Only through stories can invisible or inarticulate or silent beings speak to us. It is they who allow the past to reach out to us. Can you talk about writing that? Oh, well, you know, when you when you write a character, you really tap into their consciousness in some way. And I just could feel Chinta's voice, uh, you know, saying those things. Uh, and I just felt that, you know, she was saying something very important because it is actually true. I mean, look, uh, for example, if you stare at someone who's looking in a different di- direction and they may be like 20 feet away from you, they could be on a bus or something. So often it happens that they turn around and look at you. How does that happen? Where does that where does that awareness come from? Science certainly has no explanation for it. It's somewhere else. You know, it's something else. It's some other aspect of consciousness. Today I read that, uh, you know, the actual physical presence of um, of a doctor can make a huge difference to the uh, to the patient. The ways in which the doctor relates to the patient, to what they talk about, uh, just the fact of the, uh, the doctors projecting their presence and projecting their mind uh, plays a very large part in healing. So you know these are things that we don't really know about, and in the Western system they're kind of inexplicable, you know, because. The mind and, and the body are thought of as completely separate uh, for doctors. You know, in other systems of medicine, in every other system of medicine, really, there is no distinction between mind and body. Mind and body are the same. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? The, the author in question is um, Rabindranath Tagore. He's an Indian uh, writer from the uh, early 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize and so on, and he's a very, very, very remarkable uh, literary figure. So I translated one of his short stories, and uh, that had a had a great impact on me. The story is called Hungry Stone, and shall I read the first uh, few paragraphs? Please. We met him on the train, my cousin and I, on our way back to Calcutta after a trip around the country during the puja holiday. At first, we took him for a North Indian Muslim because of the way he was dressed. As for his conversation, it left us utterly baffled. He held forth on every conceivable subject and with such confidence that you would think the creator himself never moved a finger except on his advice. We'd had no idea that uh, there were so many unheard of goings on in the world. 
that the Russians had advanced so far, that the British had so many hidden designs, that there was so much trouble brewing amongst our own Rajas and Maharajas. We had been entirely at peace with the world till then, not having known anything about all this. But then, as our newfound friend said with a tight little smile, there happened more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are reported in your newspapers. Do you want to say anything about it? It's a wonderful story. It's a story, really a story about the uncanny, about a, uh, about a man who, uh, you know, go, goes into a little village and then he finds himself in this kind of uh, huge mansion, which is uh, abandoned, but he hears voices and so on. And it's a, it's a very beautiful, very haunting story. And it had a huge influence on me. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Uh, For me, the hardest part always is the beginning of a novel. uh, And that's the part that always changed. The the most difficult part of writing uh, uh, Gun Island was definitely the beginning. So I can read a couple of paragraphs from the beginning, if you like. Please. Uh, The strangest thing about this strange journey was that it was launched by a word. And not an unusually resonant one either, but a banal, commonplace coinage that is in wide circulation from Cairo to Calcutta. The word is banduk, which means gun in many languages, including my own mother tongue, Bengali or Bangla. Nor is the word a stranger to English. By way of British colonial usages, it found its way into the Oxford English Dictionary, where it is glossed as rifle. But there was no rifle or gun in sight the day the journey began. Nor indeed was the word intended to refer to a weapon. And that precisely was why it caught my attention. Because the gun in question was a part of a name. Bunduki Shadagan, to be translated. Gun merchant. The gun merchant entered my life not in Brooklyn, where I live and work, but in the city where I was born and raised. Calcutta, or Kolkata, as it is now formally known. That year, as on many others, I was in Kolkata through much of the winter, ostensibly for business. My work as a dealer in rare books and Asian antiquities requires me to do a good deal of on-site scouting. And since I happen to possess a small apartment in Kolkata, carved out of the house that my sisters and I inherited from our parents, the city has become a second base of operations for me. There we are. Do you want to share anything about why that was hard? This was hard for many reasons. It was hard because, uh, you know, I was introducing unfamiliar words, unfamiliar places to many people. Uh, And, you know, trying to find a way to start the story and, you know, starting a story in any case uh, that is launched by a word is a kind of weird thing, isn't it? So for all those reasons, it was very, I mean, it was was difficult to get this part done. And I had to, uh, you know, go at it again and again to try and, uh, to try and, you know, find the right balance. Where do you write? my desk, in my study. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I live in Brooklyn. And uh, basically, you know, uh, I I don't do that much. I, you know, I spend most of my day writing. And when I'm not writing my study, I'm traveling. But when I'm here, the thing that I really most like to do uh, is to book and, you know, have friends over and so on. And I do a lot of that. Uh, I've I've always been the family cook, and cooking has been for me always a kind of uh, a distraction that you know gets me away from the you know entirely living in my head kind of world that I inhabit during the day. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh uh, well, my wife, uh, some friends, uh, 
yeah, I mean, that circle has grown smaller and smaller over the, over the years. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is always very hard, but I think every writer has to take it for granted. You know, it's going to happen to them uh, several times in their lives. You know, you can't be a writer if you're very thin-skinned. Uh, you really can't. I mean, that's the first thing I tell young writers that, um, you know, you have to uh, expect some pretty hard, hard knocks. And uh, I think writers aren't accustomed to hearing that, you know, because unfortunately, uh, you know, today, especially in the creative writing world and so on, I think young writers just expect constant reinforcement. But I mean, uh, they have to be able to deal with uh, um, with rejection at a certain level. Just the other day, a young writer was telling me that, uh, you know, he had these rejections and it just got him so depressed. He had to, uh, you know, he sort of went into a funk and he couldn't leave his house for some days and so on. And I don't think that's a good that's a good state of mind to be in. It's very important uh, to be able to deal with, uh, you know, the downsides of our of our lives and worlds. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Well, I think the word I would have to say uh, it's the word that starts off this book, bandook, which means gun, and which is actually strangely uh, an English word because it uh, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this and thank you for uh, bringing books to the world. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Amitav Ghosh. And if you like today's show, check out my interview with Anuradha Roy, author of Sleeping on Jupiter, a novel centered on a temple town in southern India where the characters are confronting their past and their future. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at firstdraftadow. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft. The best, perhaps, being access to pitch-free and ad-free content. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up on the next few episodes are interviews with Leslie Jameson, Walter Mosley, and Adrian Brodeur. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.